0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Defending the Faith, today with a message entitled, Understanding Your Worldview. So turn to Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Neufeld now.
1: I try whenever and wherever I can to share my faith. And I'm not embarrassed by my faith, and I hope you're not either. I have noticed everyone else is sharing their faith as well. They often don't identify it as that, but there's a whole awful lot more evangelism going on than we're aware. And so why shouldn't I share my faith? And so on one day, which was a glorious summer day, it was my day off, I had my motorcycle on a ride. I stopped at an oceanside beach beside one of my favorite coffee shops. I dug a book out of the bag on the side of my bike. I settled down with coffee and book and sun and a chair on the outside of the coffee shop. This this was going to be a great day. Another motorcycle pulled up and a guy called out, mind if I share your parking space? And I smiled and said, it's your day. I paid for the stall and I'm glad to share it free of charge. And he smiled back and parked his bike and went in for coffee. And and soon he was out and and we talked. I said, what a spectacular day. And he said, you got to take advantage of it. You only go around once. Ha! there it was. A man sharing his faith, a deeply held inner belief that you only go around once. I said, you know, actually, sir, I think you don't just go around once. I, I think we go on for eternity. I think we're going to survive our death. You know, he looked at me with a look that told me he wasn't sure where this was all going. And finally, he said, look, I just believe what I can see. And I said, no, you don't. You believe the air exists. You believe that great planets exist in the universe that that you've never heard about. You believe in the great unseen world of, of DNA and neurons and protons and quarks. You believe all sorts of things you can't see. He now looked genuinely confused, and the conversation didn't really go where I hoped it would, but as I remember it, I do remember what seemed to be his confusion. I don't think anyone had ever addressed him on his worldview. He had a basic set of beliefs through which he saw the world, and at least so it seemed to me, no one had ever asked him if his belief system was consistent or whether it reflected reality. No one had ever said, what evidence do you have it is as you believe it to be? No one, it seems to me, had ever told him there was another way of seeing things, and perhaps he should open his mind to that possibility. So even though I've begun a three-week series which discusses the issue of, of apologetics, I thought I'd do something a little different today. Apologetics is typically seen as defending your faith. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to be prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is within us. The assumption is that we're sharing our faith, and in the process, an unbeliever has questions. In the ancient world, those questions might have been the attitude of Christians towards the gods of the Greek and the Romans, or the peculiar sexual ethic that Christians had, or even their commitment to the emperor. But Christians were always called upon to defend their faith. And today, the questions have changed, but they're still there. Are you intolerant? How about the Bible and science? How do you know you can trust the Bible and so on? The questions are many, and and sometimes the questions demand some thought. We need to be able to intelligently and reasonably and gently give a reason for the hope that is within us. But there is another side to this. Christians aren't the only ones who have faith. Everyone has faith. And here, I don't just mean people who have another religion. I mean that everyone has a grid. It's a series of things that they just presuppose to be true, things that they can't prove, but things that form the very basis of how they live their lives. Like my motorcycle friend who said, you only go around once. Clearly, he was not a Hindu. He didn't believe in the transmigration of souls, and he told me that. Oh, I suspect he never thought about it but he had a very distinct set of beliefs which were guiding his life. And, and he was, if, if you want to use evangelical language, he was witnessing to his faith at any time. Oh, I know he didn't know it. He just took his faith for granted, and he was utterly shocked that someone might not agree with him. But think about it. When he said you only go around once, how did he know that the stranger having coffee with him on the outside porch was not a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian or someone who just thought that the soul could exist independently of the body like the ancient Greeks did. Was he aware that his worldview was just one worldview in a great ocean of worldviews and his worldview was, as far as the population of the world goes, his worldview was a minority worldview? Was he even aware of the options and that saying that you only go around once is hardly a statement that you can take for granted? But, and this is the issue, he had faith. Now, I might be assuming too much if I say that I think that no one had ever confronted him for his belief system before, but I do know that it is true that most people have never been asked to give an answer for the belief system that is within them. And here's my point. Not only do Christians need to give an answer, everyone does. Please, if you're a Christian, don't think you only play defense. You must also learn to play offense. And if you are a non-Christian, don't think that only Christians need to give an answer. You have to give an answer as well. Because you, my dear listener, whoever you are, are a man or woman of faith. Now, it's common to hear someone say, well, I'm not religious. Now, when I encounter that, I usually respond by saying, but you do have faith. We call that a worldview you have a set of presuppositions. There are things that you presuppose to be true without having solid concrete evidence that it's so. How do you defend what you believe? On what basis do you have confidence that you're not living a lie? Let me try a biblical example. I'm reading Matthew 15, 1 6. It says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? for they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You see what Jesus is doing here. The Pharisees have begun by confronting him. He must answer for the hope that is within him. But Jesus also knows that the Pharisees must answer for the hope that is within them. It turns out that the Pharisees and the scribes had an unexamined presupposition. They believe that rabbinic tradition trumps Scripture. And no one had ever called them to defend that until Jesus did. And of course, they're left with an inconsistent belief system. But here's where it gets really interesting. The Pharisees and the scribes were actually blind to their own traditions. No one had ever challenged their worldview before Jesus came along. And what's even more fascinating is that the Pharisees were used to challenging others. It just never occurred to them that someone might just challenge them. But a good evangelist has always understood this. No one is ever objective or neutral. Everyone has faith. It might not be faith in God, but everyone has a set of beliefs, things that they hold to be true, things that they can't prove and things in many cases about which they have never been challenged. To some, this experience of being challenged is an altogether confusing experience, just like my friend on the motorcycle. James Sire, in his excellent book entitled The Universe Next Door, says that every single worldview or belief system is made up by asking and then answering seven fundamental questions. The truly fascinating thing is that many people don't know that they've already answered those seven questions, but in truth, we all have. Let me repeat Dr. Sire's seven questions. Question number one, what is ultimately real? Now, the answer might be God is, or some impersonal Star Wars type of force, or it might be the physical universe. Nature is what's ultimately real. And then question number two, what is the nature of the world around us? And again, the answer might be the nature of the world is that it is a creation. Or it might be it's eternal, or it might be it's simply the product of time plus chance. Question number three, what does it mean to be human? Again, there are a lot of different answers to that. You might simply be a machine, or you can be someone created in the image of God. Question number four, what happens to a person at death? Question number five, how is it possible to know anything at all? So for instance, a person who believes that physical nature is all that exists might be hard pressed to answer this question. How do you know that the wiring in your brain is not deceiving you when it comes to the outside world? Question number six, how do you know what's right and what's wrong? And finally, question number seven, what's the meaning of human history? Does it mean anything? And if it does, what does it mean? Now, as I've said, everyone already functions on the basis of answers that they have been given. The question is, do they simply believe it and take it for granted, or can they defend it?
0: God is the only true hope for living life in all its fullness. When we turn from the deadness of our sins, God sends refreshing life through Jesus. That's our national need. This is the message of Back to the Bible Canada broadcast coast to coast to renew hearts and homes by the grace of Jesus Christ. Tracy recently wrote, you have brought me the life changing news of the gospel in so many ways that I can understand and apply to real life. What a joy to hear of people growing through God's word. We're grateful to each of you for your prayers and support. We invite you to consider a one-time gift to Back to the Bible Canada or make a monthly investment in this Bible teaching ministry through our Companions for the Gospel program. Our nation needs it. To give today or receive more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.
1: In my last message, I tried to give a biblical answer to the question of evolution. Christians believe that the universe is a creation as a result of intelligent design. The heavens declare the glory of God in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Furthermore, we also believe that God created, as Genesis tells us, each according to its kind. That is, the existence of the variety of life is the result of the hand of the Creator. And for that reason, we reject the central plank of evolution. That is, we reject that the universe is the result of unguided, purposeless, meaningless chance. You know, years ago, I taught a course at a Bible college that was entitled Christianity and Contemporary Thought. I used to invite a friend to give a lecture. He taught evolutionary science, and he would make a shocking statement. He said, if the universe were to end today, there would be no one to watch, no one to care, and it wouldn't mean a thing. You know, the reason I liked this man was that even though we disagreed about virtually everything, I respected that he had the courage to express his worldview. He faced the fact that he was getting older and that the day of his death was drawing ever closer and even that he greatly dreaded death. But he also embraced the thought that when he died, in the grand perspective, there would be no one to watch, no one to care, and both his life and death didn't ultimately mean a thing. And I watched a man who was in complete despair. I mean, it hurt me to see him like that. A man who had the courage to embrace that unguided, random, purposeless chance evolutionary theory was all about. See, the problem is that he's a rare exception. Many people never connect the dots. They're secularists. They live life without God and and discount God in all things. And yet, in complete contradiction, they'll say things like, well, I just believe that there's a reason for everything. See, what we need to do as believers is to help them to see the inconsistency, even the irrationality of thinking that way. And so let me quote from Dr. Sire, who quotes a man, John Updike, in a work entitled Pigeon Fathers. Here's what Updike said when describing death. He said, without warning, David was visited by an exact vision of death, a long hole in the ground, no wider than your body, down which you were drawn while the white faces recede. You try to reach them, but your arms are pinned, shovels pour dirt in your face. There you will be forever, in an upright position, blind and silent, and in time no one will remember you, and you will never be called. As strata of rock shift, your fingers elongate, and your teeth are distended sideways in a great underground grimace, indistinguishable from a strip of chalk. And the earth tumbles on, and the sun eventually expires, and unfaltering darkness reigns where once there were stars. Now, the context of that quote is not nearly as important as the image the quote presents. Death, the eventual degradation of your body, the extinguishment of personality, the fact that your existence doesn't matter, and you go into the endless and meaningless nebula of blackness from whence you came. Your existence is but for a moment and then gone and forgotten forever. You mean nothing at all. Your best days are behind you and soon to be no more. It will be as if you had never existed, and that's all you are. See, contrast that with what David thought. Psalm 8, verses 3 to 5, David writes, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the the moon and the stars, which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. See, David believed that he was the special project of God created in God's image and that God had invested an eternal future in him. He said in Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. See, David was not denying the shadow of death, but he believed that God would shepherd him through that valley. He had nothing to fear. And in Psalm 16, verse 10, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. See, what's fascinating is that these words were ultimately fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. God would not abandon him or allow his body to see corruption. And it is the resurrection of Jesus that gives us hope. That's the Christian worldview. And so with that worldview, we do approach the day of our death, not with dread and despair, but with confidence. Our heavenly shepherd will shepherd us through it. That's called a consistent worldview. Now, let's put naturalism, the life without God, in terms of Dr. Sire's seven worldview questions. To the question, what is ultimate reality? The answer is it's physical matter. Physical matter is all that's there. To the second question, what is the nature of the physical universe? The answer is, it's a closed system of cause and effect. Nothing ever breaks in from the outside. No hand from the outside is ever going to save you. You get cancer, cause and effect is your future. Indeed, death, nothing is going to rescue you from it. It's your future. To the third question, what is a human being? The answer is, you're a complex natural being made up of chemicals and other physical properties. There's no more to you than that. Your sense of self-consciousness is merely the deceit of your chemical makeup. No chemicals, no self. To the fourth question, what happens to you at death? It's that your consciousness, the sum total of your physical chemicals, will degrade, never to be revived. To the fifth question, how is it possible to know anything? The answer is, it's not possible for you to be certain about anything. Your physical senses, which interact with the outside world, are the sum-product of your chemicals. You have no way of knowing whether those senses are actually a reliable indicator of what's out there. It might all be delusional. At the very least, you should admit that you know nothing with certainty. To the sixth question of ethics, what's right and wrong, the answer is, whatever is good for the survival of the species is right, whatever isn't is wrong, and finally... To the last question, what is the meaning of history? The answer is nothing. History means nothing, or as Henry Ford so aptly put it, history is bunk. So listen, if you're a naturalist, have the courage to be consistent. Say, I believe in unguided, random, purposeless chance. I don't have truth. I have no hope. I have no philosophical basis for compassion for the weak and vulnerable. I have no concept of righteousness. I'm just struggling to survive until I don't survive. Along the way, nothing makes sense, and my life doesn't mean a thing. Now, if you're a believer, and maybe you're helping a naturalist to see that, would I ask you to be gentle? You know, that can result in a crisis. At the very least, anyone who fully embraces that predominant thought system of our day, anyone who says, you only go around once, the only possible response is to fall into despair. Now, in truth, most North Americans actually believe in some form of life after death. See, my wife was recently in a conversation at work, and her non-Christian colleague expressed outrage that some people would think that when you're dead, you just cease to exist. I mean, she's not alone in that belief. But we need to push people who say that to give a reason for the hope that is within them. What reasons do they have? I would continue to push that line of thinking until the person is forced to confront the difference between wishful thinking and a genuinely consistent worldview. See, at that point, I would share my thinking. I would show my friend 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I would say I have no confidence that there's anything after death but for this one thing. The death of Jesus, followed by his resurrection, is a real, attested fact in history. I would then explain that Jesus made some amazing claims, and in order to give evidence that those claims were true, he said, and it's recorded in John 2, verse 19, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.'" And he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus' physical defeat of death is the only hope that I have. But the same Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This same Jesus began his public ministry with the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called upon anyone who wanted eternal life to abandon their own lifestyle choices and to entrust their future into his hands. And in response, he would give them the greatest gift of all, the gift of eternal life. See, at the very least, The utter beauty of the life of Christ is offered up to someone who has no beauty at all. And that allows someone to identify the lack of hope that is within them. and allows the believer in Jesus to identify the deathless hope of anyone who trusts in Christ. If at this point in time in your life you've never trusted in Christ, I lay him before you as the only genuine hope that any person will ever have.
0: John, I'm wondering after you've spoken, does everybody have a worldview or do they know what their worldview is? Because I would think it's important because you really base your life decisions on it. Yeah, I think you've already put your finger on it.
1: Everyone has a worldview, although there are a great many people, I would almost say, Ben, probably the majority of people have never identified it, written it out, or tried to ask themselves, is that consistent and can I live with that? I mean, I, I would argue that so many people are in despair because their worldview naturally leads them to the place of despair, and they have no way to get out of it. So, you know, when trouble comes and, and uh, tragedy strikes, their worldview indicates there's no reason for this at all, and so they fall into despair. Now, they've lived according to that for years. They've not identified it. No one's ever challenged it, but they have it. So, I, you know, I guess I'm arguing it's important as we do apologetics with people, not only that we ask am- Answer for the reasons of for the hope that we have, but to turn it around and to ask people to begin to identify what is your worldview.
0: Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, we'd love to invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery. Time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and times of worship and song with feature musical guest, Amanda Stott. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate.